Good morning. I am feeling a little bit under the weather, so if I've avoided you, hugging you, handshaking you this morning, and if I dive out uh, right after I finish preaching, then you know why. So um, <clears throat> I know that the Holy Spirit's going to show up this morning and do a great job, and so I'm just excited to be here. I'm excited there's so many of you here on Youth Pastor Sunday. Did you know it's Youth Pastor Sunday? Any long weekend where a youth pastor gets to preach is Youth Pastor Sunday. So there's all my youth pastor friends messaging about getting to preach on this Sunday. It's, it's a lot of fun. So let me pray as we uh, head into today's message. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are here with us. We thank you for the minor prophets for this series that we've been going through this summer. God, I just pray that as we end off in Malachi today that that this would be be impactful for us, as your word always is. Would we have open hearts and open minds to hear from you this morning? Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? Would you speak the words that each of us need to hear this morning, that I need to hear this morning? We thank you for how much you love us and you care for us in your name. Amen. Do I have, Sarah, do I have access to this or? There we go. All right, if you're taking notes today, my sermon is titled Malachi, the Book of Love. Some of you seem confused, that's okay. We will, we will show you what it's all about. When I was in high school, I had a great group of friends. Chris, Chris, Corey, Justin, and Aaron. I've been thinking about these guys because this is the year we all turn 40. And I am the youngest of all of us because my birthday's in December, and so I'm going to uh, lord that over them for at least the next few months. Um, Hanging out every day after school, sharing lockers, playing music together, going to youth group, eating huge pots of spaghetti for an after-school snack, going downtown Vancouver for the day, uh, listening to our parents' records uh, in each other's living rooms, walking to McDonald's, so many adventures with these guys. With a group like this, someone was always available to hang out at school, after school, in the evening, on the weekends, everyone's homes, and parents were always so accommodating and so excited to have us over to hang out. I can't think of many moments from grade 8 to grade 12 without one or two of these guys being a part of those moments. It's so interesting after we graduated that our lives inevitably took different paths. College, university, jobs, relationships, our dreams and ambitions sent us all in different ways. For a time, we stayed connected. We didn't have social media like we have now because I'm old. Um, But without consistent time spent together, we slowly adopted our own lives. It is crazy to me, and this is what I've been thinking in this 40th year of my life, it's crazy to think that all of my best friends in high school that live within an hour of my current home, that I I never see them and I never talk to them. The history I have with these guys, the amount of time, memories, and experiences we had together, it is sad to now think about how much time I have let pass without connecting even in small ways. 
This week, while I was writing my sermon in Starbucks, I flipped over to Messenger, added as many of these guys as I could find, and I said, guys, enough is enough. We need to get together. This is the year that we celebrate our friendship, we celebrate getting old, we get back together. And it was, it was cool to see each of them saying, hey, I've been thinking about this too. Hey, I've been thinking about this too. And so we're all really excited to get together with our families, just see where everybody's at. Because I can't think about many moments from grade 8 to 12 without one or two of these guys being a part of it. But it's interesting how easily we can let something that was once so essential, something so important, something woven into our everyday lives be so easily set aside or replaced. And today, as we're wrapping up our series in the Minor Prophets, we come to the last words written in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Throughout the the Old Testament, We see this story of Israel, God's chosen people, a people chosen by God to live in relationship with him, to live by a certain set of rules and standards that would make other nations living around Israel take note and wonder, why why are they doing that? Why are they doing these certain practices? Why are they living this way? All in an effort to point the nations around Israel to God. If you've been with us for any of the messages in this series, you know that Israel has been kind of all over the place when it comes to following through on their part of this relationship. And now we come to this final book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and his name is literally translated messenger. And he is talking to the nation, the entire nation of Israel, uh, and he is a post-exilic prophet. What that means is that the nation of Israel is no longer living in exile in Babylon. When when Malachi speaks to them, they have been back in their own country for over a hundred years. Israel cannot talk about very many moments of their history without talking about God. Israel cannot talk about very many moments of their history without talking about God about God. Yet somewhere along the way, and we will see in this book, that they have lost sight of the importance of this relationship. Maybe they had heard the message so many times that it had become redundant. Or they had heard it so many times that they lost sight of the original message and replaced it with their own version of the truth. The thing that blows my mind is that the Israelites, with all of their history, with all of their stories, with all of the past generations interacting with God, all the first-hand accounts of God's work and faithfulness, that they still found ways to stray from him and do their own thing. One commentary writes, the Israelites had the advantage and weight of history on their side. They could see the shining rewards of faithfulness and the punishments associated with judgment even to the point of being uprooted from their land. But even then, with all that perspective, the book of Malachi teaches that they still strayed from the Lord's path. Now, before we completely write off the Israelites and their uh, situation, let's look at a little context. About 80 years earlier, uh, before the book of Malachi, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the returning exiles to rebuild the temple. 
You know, they're back, from, they're back from exile. They're looking around. Their city doesn't look quite the same. Their nation doesn't look quite the same. So they're saying, hey, let's rebuild the temple. According to the prophets, the rebuilding of the temple would result in peace. It would result in prosperity. It would re- result in people from other nations coming to God because of seeing how God was working in the nation of Israel. And the return of God's own glorious present presence back to the nation of Israel. And so on some level, it's understandable that the Israelites would be discouraged when all these years later, they had not seen any of these things come to fruition. Instead, they are faced with economic difficulties due to drought and crop failures. Israel was still an insignificant nation in their their place in the world. And they were no longer ruled by a king in the line of David. God's presence never returned the way that they thought it would. And they experienced only spiritual decline. I'm not justifying the actions of the Israelites, but merely showing you from a human point of view that there are factors other than let's just forget about God and his commands. Because in honesty, the book of Malachi is not written to people who have abandoned God or completely turned their back in full defiance on him. But rather, Malachi's message was directed at a people that had traded in the truth about God's love for their own version of spiritual practice. And they were sitting back, waiting for an abundance of blessing and prosperity when they had already been given everything by God. Rather than pressing into the reality and the insurance of that love in faith and obedience, so the book of Malachi becomes this contested back and forth between God, a God longing to return to relationship with his people, And a people who feel justified in questioning God. Not just asking questions. God doesn't mind when we ask him questions. But questioning the intent and the motive of God. A God who loves them, had chosen them as his people, protected them, worked and moved and promised them everything. So we're going to break down the book of Malachi into just a few sections here. So the first word we're going to look at is perspective. The entire back and forth between God and his people in the book of Malachi is based, what I believe, on competing perspectives. God is saying and meaning a certain thing, and Israel is completely missing the point or seeing it from a totally different standpoint. This is why God's message from Malachi starts with this simple phrase, I have loved you, says the Lord. Being able to step back and see the book from a cultural perspective, I can see both sides of this. Even though in their current state, Israel might struggle uh, with seeing God's love, they have generational and historical perspective that should afford them some ability to, to trust God in any situation and rest in the significance and the seriousness of God's love for them. Two key verses spoken to their ancestors and probably repeated to generation after generation. Exodus 6, verse 7. You will be my people and I will be your God. I am the Lord your God and you will know that I made you free from Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 11. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. God is reiterating to his people that he has loved them, that he loves them now, and he will continue to love them. And it is this lack of trust in God's love that makes the actions of the Israelite nation all the more apparent. God doesn't want a people going through the motions saying they have worked through a spiritual checklist. He longs for people to serve him and follow his commands out of love. And the remainder of Malachi's message to the people shows what happens when a people lose sight of the overwhelming love of God. Because losing sight of God's love not only moves their focus away from him, but allows them to be content in justifying their own way of living. Malachi 1, 6 to 11, talks about these flawed sacrifices. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown you contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor, Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to you. With such offerings from your hands, will will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. God is saying to the Israelites, you would never invite a governor over to your house, someone of high importance, and offer him these things to eat. And yet you have no problem casting off these seconds or, or blemished offerings to the creator and the sustainer of everything. Somehow, We do it in our lives too. Somehow we twist God's love into being super forgiving or super understanding. That God understands I'm busy. God knows my finances. God can see what I'm dealing with. He'll be all right with me just bringing this to him. It makes me think of this verse in Luke 11. 
Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is set up to give us everything. If God is willing to treat us and care for us in this way, why do we feel justified in expecting him to be okay with our poor offerings or lack of offerings to him altogether? Now, we don't have an altar set up here on a Sunday morning. We're not carrying in animals. But how often do we offer God the first fruits of our time, the first fruits of our money, the first fruits of our energy, the first fruits of our family, our careers, our conversations, our finances, our gifts and abilities, or our loyalty? Our understanding of God's love should compel and direct what we are willing to sacrifice to God. Have you seen these pictures on the old internet that teach us about the importance of punctuation? Has anybody seen these pictures before? I'll show you a few examples, okay? Oh, People are eating children in this area. Please leash your dog and clean up after them. Or this one, let's eat grandpa. Or let's eat grandpa. (laughs) Or this one, I want to thank my parents, Tiffany and God. Or I want to thank my parents, Tiffany and God. Thanks, mom and dad. That's good. Or man eating chicken. Or a man eating chicken. (laughs) These. I thought of these examples because in the, in, the, in the book of Malachi, there is a charge to the priests about what they've been teaching, about what they've been showing the people of God. And these funny examples only help to reiterate the fact that it is incredibly easy to read or hear something that can lead to wrong conclusions or wrong outcomes. And we have to be able to come to Scripture with a certain filter in mind. Malachi 2, 1 to 2 and 7 to 9. Now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. In many ways, the priests were more to blame in this situation than even the common Israelite person because they could see the actions going on. They had God's word. They had the charge to teach and correct and train the people of Israel, and yet they seemed to sit back and allow the people to do whatever they felt they were justified to do rather than calling the people of Israel to a higher standard. They were not pointing people back to the truth of God's word. I think about this verse often when I get to preach or speak at youth. 
Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I am humbled and honored every time I get to stand up on this stage and preach on Sunday morning. There is a weight that comes with being able to communicate and explain God's word to his people. And it is out of love for Jesus and a love for God's word that I want to communicate effectively and explain intelligently what God's word says. Not my opinion, not what I think, not what I hope you will do, but what God's word says. And there is a need when any of us approach Scripture that we would do it with a posture of reverence and from the standpoint that God is the ultimate authority and truth, no matter if the verse makes sense or if it seems like a lot of work or if it means we have to have a tough conversation or we have to forgive someone or we have to own up to part of our life that we've been keeping hidden from God or from others. We must approach Scripture from the standpoint that God has written it out of a great love for His creation. And He has given it to us freely to study and read. Our understanding of God's love should compel and direct how we interact with God's Word. Because it can lead to this, to us becoming selfishly justified. Malachi 2, 10-12 says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. One commentary says, corrupt practices are the genuine fruit and product of corrupt motives. In this verse, we find people dealing falsely with one another, and it is because they think falsely about their God. If we can't live a certain standard for God, why would we do any better in our dealings with one another? The Israelites found justification in selfishly dismissing certain commands of God or changing them to fit their current situation. They had been in exile for so long, and so they justified marrying foreign wives who brought foreign religious practices and beliefs into the nation of Israel that were contrary to God. They mistreated the wives of their youth. They acted with little regard for their fellow man and wondered why God wasn't overjoyed when they brought their offerings in worship. Malachi 2.17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him when you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and he is delighted with them? Or else where is the God of justice? One quote I read says, Under the pretense of making God out to be not as severe as he was commonly said to be, they said things things to be as they wanted them to be, because they thought he was not like them, that he didn't care what was going on in their lives, that they may do as they please, that he didn't see them and he didn't pay attention to them. They took the lack of God's presence, or what they felt like the lack of God's presence in their lives, as a way to justify, selfishly, the actions 
of a nation. Acting out of love for someone doesn't mean only doing the right thing in their presence or when they feel their presence, but honoring that relationship through your actions and words in every situation. Maybe think of a work trip that I took to Las Vegas. Not a church work trip, okay? Just, it was a different a company I worked for. When we landed, one of the guys in our group started taking off his wedding ring almost immediately when we got, started getting off the plane. So I had a good working relationship with this guy, so I said, hey, what, what's up? I see you're taking off your wedding ring. And he just, like, blank, blank face, like, in all seriousness said, oh, me and my wife have an agreement that when one of us is in Vegas, then we're not married. And so I, okay, I didn't know what to say to that. So later on, I found out that he was joking. Uh, but, but to me, as a young guy going on this work trip with, with, a, with an older man who I knew had been married for a long time and stuff, it was a sad commentary on how uh, he would even joke about something um, so easily. When we are focused on God and his deep love for us, it becomes harder to justify our own actions and easier to do what he has called us to do. Whether we sense his presence in its fullness or when when we feel like we might be far away from him. The natural outpouring of our heart will be to follow his instruction, not to find loopholes and ways to get out of the tough things that he is calling us to do. Our understanding of God's love should compel us and direct us to live out his commands. The last thing, holding back. Malachi 3, 6 to 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let's be clear. Whatever we have, whatever we create, whatever we make, whatever we, stay, we save, whatever we store up is all God's. He is our creator, our sustainer, our healer, our king, our savior, our comforter, our guide, and our shepherd. Do we not owe everything to him? And yet he wants us to bring what we have in a heart that's aligned with his. Not begrudgingly or out of unwanted duty or just to go through the motions, but because We understand God's love for us and want to give back to him. Now, this could be money. It could also be in our gifts and abilities. It could be in our time. It could be in serving others. It could be using our talents, all with the intention of pointing people to God. 
After all of the things God is correcting in the Israelites' behavior, his love is shown in him telling them to test him in this. God is saying, give me your trust and watch what I will do. It might not be what you're expecting, but watch what I will do. Our understanding of God's love should compel and direct us to give God everything he asks for. There's two words I thought of when I thought about Malachi and the Israelites and God's love is presence and proximity. The book of Malachi is all about God's love for his people, a book about God seeking his people to live, serve, and interact with him not out of duty or out of ceremony, but out of relationship with himself. And the story is about competing perspectives. The nation of Israel starts to stray, starts to lose sight of what's most important because they can't see God's presence or feel his nearness or proximity to them. But God gave his creation free will to accept an overwhelming offer of relationship and the benefits that come with such a union. At first read through, I couldn't help, I couldn't help but look down on the Israelites for discounting all of the things that God had done for them over and over again for generation after generation. How could they just put aside such a rich history to do their own thing? But as I thought about reading Malachi through the filter of love, I realize that we have the benefit of a perspective that the Israelites never had. With the Bible being this overarching story that continually points to the person of Jesus, from Malachi we can see that God's message of love for his people just wasn't hitting home the way he expected. He had to make the message clearer. He had to make the message more tangible. He had to make the message something they couldn't miss. And so we know from people who read their Bibles, we know that God waits 400 years to unleash his ultimate message of love in his son, Jesus. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The Israelites got to hear a hint. They got to see a glimpse of what was coming. But their faith and hope was set in something that had not happened yet, that they couldn't see. Last Christmas, we got the chance to go to Moncton, New Brunswick. Why? Why would I go to Moncton? Oh, my, my brother and his wife and his six kids, my nieces and nephews, live there. We got to go with my parents. We were all together for Christmas. It was awesome. My nephew, Oliver, a very interesting fellow. He's growing a mullet for, for school, so I'm accepting that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> he wanted a metal detector, of all things, for Christmas. And so on Christmas morning, he got past a huge box, opened it up, and inside was a metal detector and a foldable shovel. When we were all done opening presents, he desperately wanted to go out and try it out in their backyard. But he didn't want to go alone. He wanted someone to go with him. So he found his target, me sitting warmly in the living room, and asked if I would come outside with him. I wasn't crazy. 
about the idea being like, I don't know, minus a million and in the wind chill. But the fact that he asked, the fact that he asked was all I needed for me to get bundled up and head outside with him. He didn't want to go alone and it wasn't because he was scared or didn't know what to do or couldn't figure out how to use this thing because all those kids are very smart. My presence is what he wanted. It wasn't just that he wanted me to be outside with him. He wanted me to participate in this brand new gift that he had been given. I was surprised. We'd only been outside for a couple of minutes. He turned to me and passed me his brand new metal detector that he had been waiting for since whenever he had asked for it. And he said, Uncle Sam, you, you do this and I'll take the shovel. Something so new, something so exciting, he was willing to enjoy being together in the freezing cold, laughing about where we should look next and allowing me to lead in the backyard, seeing what we could find. I think the Israelites missed God's presence. The thing about Malachi is the Bible isn't clear about how often they asked him to reveal that presence to them. How often they were excited just to have God along for the ride, for the moments in their lives. Giving the reins over to God, excited for his presence and his proximity, allowing him to guide and direct and walk with them. And so why, why don't we ask him for his presence? Two nights ago, we let my son Brooks, who's just over four months old now, sleep in his crib for the first time for the entire night. We didn't plan. I thought there'd be more applause for that. It's fine. It's fine. Don't. Not now. Don't now. No. No. It's, those are pity claps now. That's fine. We didn't have a plan for when this first night was going to happen, and I'm, and I'm glad because I wouldn't have looked forward to that. It was just a choice uh, that... Melody made in the moment. We'd been putting him in there for kind of his first set of sleep. Then we'd been bringing him in into our bassinet, and she thought, let's just see, let's just see how he does. To this point, it's still hard to go to work. It's hard to be here this morning knowing that Melody and Brooks are at home. I'm just hoping I go home, and she says that he kept looking towards the TV to hear his dad's voice. <laughs> so at night, these last four months, he has slept close in close proximity to Melody and I, in his bassinet. And I have to admit, these last few nights have been tough, knowing that he wasn't in the same room as us. I thought about it, that probably in like feet, feet and inches, it's probably about the same distance. There's just a wall and two doors, and so it's not really, anyways, it's fine. <clears throat> we have a video monitor in our room, so the past two nights I've had an iPad on as bright as it can go, right beside my nightstand, like right beside where I'm sleeping, and then I have my phone turned up so I can hear, and every once in a while I'll just wake up and I can look and see where he is. I know he's safe, I know he's secure, I know he is growing up. The part of me these last two nights has been conscious and listening for when he might cry out for Mel and I to readjust him or comfort him or feed him. So this is what he looks like on the monitor. I can also take pictures. So I wake up, I'm like, that's a cute picture, go back to sleep. <laughs> He's also a tummy sleeper like his dad, which is the best. Okay. 
just any reason I can, you know, work my four-month-old into my message. But then these are the moments I really wait for, when he starts waking up and looking right in the camera. It's like right before he cries, so it's fine. So, Part of me is always conscious, always listening for when he might cry out for Mel and I to readjust him, to comfort him, or for his mom to go feed him. I love him so much, and I just want him to be near to me. I want to be in proximity to my son. So I get excited when he wakes up and looks at the camera or coos or cries out for Mel and I to go in his room to be with him. In this same way, God loves you. He loves you. His presence and proximity are free for the taking. He can sit back and watch you in the same way that I watch my son. But he won't run into your room. He won't run into your home. He won't run to you at your job unless you call out to him. He waits patiently out of love for you to call on him, to invite him into your life. God is waiting for our wide-eyed faces on the monitor to call out to him. He is itching to enter in the conversations and the daily rhythms of our lives. The good, the bad, the confusing, the tough, the unexplainable, the joyful, the everyday mundane, God wants to be asked to enter each of those. And something wasn't clicking with the Israelites. And so God said, I will show them my love through my son, Jesus. Because in Acts 17, verse 27, it says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And invite those that are serving communion to come up and we're gonna, we're gonna smoothly transition into communion. So the question today is about love. Do you believe that God truly loves you? That he wants what is best for you? That he wants to be present and near to you in your life? Do you love him enough to invite him in? Allowing him to direct and guide your choices and actions, your decisions, your thoughts, your priorities and plans. Maybe the issue for you this morning is that it's difficult for you to understand how an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God of the universe who created everything would love and care for you. So how will you engage in communion today? The table is an amazing invitation to experience the presence and proximity of Jesus. Being able to participate not only in something modeled by Jesus, but something that represents this ultimate act of love. Does this extraordinary love of God and his willingness to let his son die on the cross for you change your perspective, influence your actions, overwhelm your thoughts? Does it compel you to seek out his presence and his proximity. Taking the bread and the cup is an expression of this relationship you have. For those of us that believe because our faith is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A relationship that goes far beyond this, this moment. That the reverence and awe of communion would linger with us daily and be a reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. Some of you may be here 
this morning for the first time. You're listening to me speak about the Bible. Maybe you've never opened a Bible before. Maybe you're hearing all of this for the first time. And I make this a practice when we do communion, when I lead communion. Maybe you've come over the last number of weeks hearing about Jesus and you want to make a decision to follow him. Maybe you've been waiting for someone to ask you what you think about Jesus while I am asking you. Will you respond in reverence? Will you respond to God's love? Will you accept this new relationship with Jesus? If you have come to this place today that you believe in the truth that Jesus died for your sins, just take this moment, you bow your head wherever you are, confess this to Jesus, repeat after me. God, I know that I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sin and rose again to give me new life. And I desire that you would come into my life and take control. If you prayed that prayer this morning, come and find one of the elders or, or the staff. We would love to talk to you about what that means moving forward, how you can experience God's love in your life. I've asked Kyle to lead a specific song this morning uh, while we pass out the elements. It's a song called Want It All. And while communion is all about Jesus, all about his sacrifice for us, this morning, I want to encourage you to take a moment to decide how you want to proceed this week in the love and relationship that you have with God. How will you allow God's love for you and your love for God to impact the daily rhythms of your life? The chorus of this song uh, has been playing in the back of my mind this week as I've been writing my message. It says, if your love is a river overflowing, then I want it, I want it all. If you died for my freedom and my redemption, then I want it, I want it all. The thing about that chorus is the first and the third line are 100% true, whether we believe it or not, whether we question it, whether we understand it, whether we accept it or not, God's love for you is overflowing. And Jesus died for our freedom and our redemption. The question this morning is whether you want it all. The bread and the cup, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 24, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents Christ's body that was given for you. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved and paid the price for sin that we could never pay on our own. You and I deserved death and worse. We deserved separation from God. But God places so much worth on your life that he sent Christ once and for all that he might bring us to God. 1 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sin provided a way for forgiveness. Today, today, those who believe by faith in the work of Christ on the cross 
have been forgiven and are given new life in Christ. A life where we can not only approach God, but we can experience his presence and proximity and his love through the Holy Spirit so that we could choose to have a relationship that permeates the moments in our days and experience the fullness of life that's only found in Jesus. I'm going to ask Ken to come up and grab a microphone so he can pray for the bread and the cup. Just a reminder as we hand these out that there is two cups, one with the bread and one with the juice, so make sure you take both of those. And my encouragement to you is to listen or sing along uh, with the worship team as they, as they sing this new song this morning, and then you decide when you want to take the bread and the cup individually where you're at this morning. Ken. Thank you. Join me. Heavenly Father, we just praise you today, Lord, and we just thank you for who you are, Lord. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and you've shown your great love for us, Lord, as Pastor Sam has reminded us today. And Lord, there is no greater showing of that love than the fact that you sent your son. Lord, we needed you to do that, Lord, because we fall short. But you love us. Father, you sent your son to pay the price that we could not pay. His body was broken for us, Lord, and we thank you. His blood was spilled for us, Lord, to save us and to help us to draw us near to you, Lord, and to allow us to spend eternity with you, Father. Lord, we remember that today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.